Sometimes history is incredibly dry, a slow repetition of facts, of dates and times, of names and of cause and effect. But that way of grasping history is based upon the predilections of academics. The purpose of a historian is, after all, to make sense of history, to analyse it, to distance ourselves from those events and critically grasp the underlying issues ongoing. But history is, as I've said often before, merely current affairs with added time. History is other people's lives. And as such, history is as complicated and as intriguing as our lives. Now we have this great distance of time between us and the past events, which allow us to apply hindsight, and armed with that, we get to feel all superior towards people in the past. But even the wisest of us know that such perspective is granted only to the study of history. Life itself, all our lives, their lives and our lives, are wild things, messy and complicated, filled with people and passions and contemplations and adjustments. Our choices are often compromises based on the least worst scenario, we second-guess ourselves, we doubt ourselves, and in response to that doubt, we either act boldly or not at all. Life, our lives today, are filled with a myriad of people, and the events of our world seem chaotic and wild. We become convinced that we live in the craziest of times, and not, as history clearly shows, an era where even now, even this very day, it would be considered a sedate utopia for any resident of the past. They would look upon our world with its chaos and speed and interlapping stories and ten-score global leaders each of us could name without even thinking about, and they'd see it as a blissful moment of calmness. Because history always is, from the point of view of those in it, just as chaotic, messy, confusing, and as wild as our world is today. Worse, even. And what follows is the history of London over three years, where that feeling would have been hard to shake. Three years where the events in the city and around the city would whirl and twist and fly and dance around the residents, promising a score of possible outcomes, none of which they would have known. We know what's coming, sure, but they didn't. So, the messy choices made by the people in this episode and in all the episodes before and to come are based purely upon people trying their best to cope with life. This episode we will travel near and far from a large stone building sat on the banks of the River Thames up to Nottingham where we'll have a look at some terrible brutalities taking place. We'll travel to small hamlets in Essex, to rivers off the coast of modern-day Belgium and all the way to the Middle East. And yes, London will remain the special focus of this episode because something very terrible was about to happen to London. Something horrific. Hi there, my name is Saul and I'm your narrator and host of this, The Story of London, a podcast that tries to explain the history of the city as a linear narrative. If this is your first time listening to the story, then welcome, pull up a seat and get comfy. 
Each episode tries to stand alone, I hope, as a fascinating little insight into London's tale. But if you can get into it, you're free to listen to it all from the very start, up until where we are now, round about the year 1212. And it constitutes over two days' worth of a single story of a single place. Sometimes, like last episode, this means wandering away to discuss wider issues so as to better understand what was coming. And sometimes, like this episode, we'll find ourselves returning again and again to its crowded, fetid streets. This chapter we're going to explore the men and the events over the next couple of years as London began to find itself drawn increasingly into a civil war the like of which England had genuinely never seen before. Welcome then to chapter 82 of the story of London. The land kept silence. This chapter is all about meeting new people in London's story. New characters who will wander upon London's stage for a while, have their parts to play and then leave us. The first is a man called Robert Fitzwalter. Now we don't know much about Robert Fitzwalter's early life. He was a nobleman of England at the time, which of course means he was entirely French. Robert's claim to fame in this story is that he inherited a small chunk of Essex, a little hamlet called Little Dunmo. And Little Dunmo, that small chunk of Essex, had a very important link to London. Today you'd find this sleepy slice of Essex suburbia just up the road from Braintree. But once upon a time, around about the year 1066, it had been granted to a Norman invader. And 20 years later, when William the Conqueror commissioned the Doomsday Book, there in 1086, this small slice of Essex was said to be the property of one Ralph Baynard. Ralph Baynard was the man charged by William the Conqueror to build one of London's three castles, Baynard Castle, something we covered all the way back in chapter 51 of the podcast. Baynard passed this castle on to his son, Geoffrey Baynard, and he in turn passed it on to his son, William Baynard, and William Baynard decided to rebel against Henry I, which was really stupid, and he had his lands made forfeit. The village of Little Dunmore and Castle Baynard was then given to a man called Robert Fitzrobert, a member of the powerful and rather land-grabbing de Clare dynasty, and his grandson is our character of Robert Fitzwalter. And all of this is just explaining that the story starts with the man who was the lord of Baynard's castle, the large stone fortification that nestled by the River Thames on the left-hand side of London looking north. Baynard's was the Tower of London's equal and opposite in many respects. Like bookends, they nestled the city of London, one to the east and one to the west. Baynard's had the more interesting neighbourhood. Behind the Tower of London was nothing really apart from a couple of churches and the new poor suburb of Portsoken. Around Baynard's, well, just behind it, you had the small third castle of London, Monteficcio, to its right of Baynards, looking south towards Southwark from the battlements of that castle, you would have seen the great newly expanded ditch that protects London 
and that's opened up to the Thames and is now filled with water. And across from this was a spit of marshy land, and then you got to the River Fleet, and at the mouth of the fleet are the great water gates erected by the Knights Templar, and still a bone of contention for the authorities in London, as they feel they have no right to build those bloody things here, and, and the legal battles to remove those water gates were now in their 53rd year of litigation and going strong, and just up from there, along the River Fleet, you had the giant water wheel that drive the bread-making mill for the Knights Templar. And behind that, after you go past St. Bride's Church and a few other places, you would see the walls and the compound of the great precinct headquarters of the Order of the Knights Templar here in London. Baynards was sitting in one cool, illustrious neighbourhood. But Robert Fitzwalter was not just the Lord of Baynard's Castle. With the castle came the Soak of the castle. Now, as regular listeners know, a Soak was a name given to a strip of land or a section of the city dating back to the earliest parceling out of land behind the Great Walls of London, overseen by the first and only named Lord of the city, Ethelred of Mercia the son-in-law of Alfred the Great, a story we covered all the way back in chapter 14. In time, the soaks of London became the building blocks of the wards of London, the division of communities behind the walls that elected the alderman that ran the place. Owning a souk usually meant you were able to tax commerce on everything that took place within it. Basically, the Lords of Baynard's Castle ran just not just the castle itself, but the streets around it, which possibly existed within the outer walls of the castle. By all accounts, and as far as I can tell, Baynard's at this time would have looked like a standard Norman-era castle. So you had have a tower in the middle, you'd have a stone wall around it, basically a Mott and Bailey, and there were houses within the compound of that stone wall. And we know that from the legal case we covered back in chapter 63 that the previous owner, Robert Fitzrobert, had reinforced his rights as Lord of Baynard's Castle to be in command of the River Thames from Baynard's all the way south to Staines. And as such, the owner of Baynard's Castle was responsible for the creation of fish weirs designed to catch fish on an industrial level in the river. Added to this, we also know that Robert Fitzwalter, the current occupant of Baynard's Castle, was not just some highfalutin hoity-toity noble overseeing this part of London without caring what others did. We have reason to believe he used his position to interact with London's mercantile and trade aspects. He owned ships which would import wine into the city for sale at the royal court and then beyond, and these ships received special privileges from King John. And since he was involved in the London trade aspects, we also suspect he was involved in the other aspects of the city's life, including finance. We did a whole chapter on the growing money pit of the 12th century, and we're pretty sure he and his family were involved in that in 1202 as a re reward from the king, as well as being made a lord of Hereford Castle. King John also released his family debts to a bunch of Jewish moneylenders in London as well. So here we have this character who is a noble, was big in London, and was seemingly previously in with the king. For example, we know around February to March 1203, Fitzwalter was with John when King John was in Rouen, and we covered this kind of last chapter. At this time, Fitzwalter was made the joint 
Castellan of a strategic castle in Normandy called Les Vaudreilles, alongside his cousin, a knight called Sueur de Quincy. Later that year, after they'd been appointed, King Philip II of France invaded, seeking to take the duchy. Now, as I covered last episode, the attack upon Normandy in 1203 by Philip was his great campaign for taking the duchy, with castles and communities falling quickly before him. And the castle of Les Vondurilles was in his path. Robert Fitzwalter and his cousin Sia were well provisioned and well supplied. The castle was in good condition. They were expected to make a stand. But they didn't. King Philip had only just basically arrived with his forces when the two men surrendered without so much as an angry protest crossbow boat being fired in objection. And Philip had them both locked up, demanding a ransom of 5,000 marks of silver for them. Now, Turns out that around about July that year after this happened, King John issued Lesser's patent from Rouen that went on to say that the two men had surrendered the castle because he commanded them to do so, an act that was witnessed by his ever-faithful William Marshall. But crucially, one, he did not offer to help the two men with their ransom, and two, the letter did nothing to stop the impact upon their reputations. Contemporaries mocked Fitzwalter and de Quincey for being cowards over this. And we know that by November 1203, Fitzwalter's cousin, another noble called William de Aubigny, was overseeing the selling of some of Fitzwalter's estates in order to raise the cash to get him out of jail. In time, Fitzwalter was ransomed and he returned to England. We know because his holdings were larger in England than Normandy, he decided he'd travel back to England, as opposed to sticking around under Philip. And we also know he was one of the knights who travelled with John to Aquitaine and witnessed John's raids north and east from there, which led to the political status quo being solidified for a few years. And it was in October 1206 that Fitzwalter witnessed the truce made between John and King Philip Augustus. So hopefully you get a bit of an impression of this guy. He's French, he's landed, he owns Baynard's Castle. He's a recognised power in the city with links to the wine trade. His cousin, Sir de Quincey, I just said, he did very well over the remaining years because in 1207, he became, by marriage and inheritance from his wife's household, the Earl of Winchester. And by 1211, with King John getting involved in Scottish politics, King John sent Sir de Quincey North into Scotland with over 200 mercenaries, the Brabacons I mentioned last episode, and here they fought at John's behest for King William the Lion of Scotland. Now these names mean nothing big right now, but I'm saying them and their story because these characters will become increasingly important in London's story over the next few years. On top of all of this, you must remember if you've listen to previous episodes, and if you didn't, allow me to inform you that London and England had been under interdict, and King John was personally excommunicated by Pope Innocent III. One of the responses to the interdict upon England, which supposedly banned any church services taking place within the buildings, had been the erection of outdoor places to preach, that way, technically, priests weren't doing anything inside churches. See what I mean? And it's possible that the St. Paul's Cross, which became one of the major landmarks of London, originated from this period. Now, we cannot say for sure, 
because it could have come from earlier. But the outdoor preaching pulpit that became St. Paul's Cross, which became such a centre of London life, pretty sure originated or became much more heavily used during the era of the interdiction. Anyway, let's get on with our story. In the year 1212, King John arrived in the town of Nottingham to oversee another punitive expedition against the Welsh. John had, in the years previous, married his daughter Joan to a Welsh prince called Llewellyn the Fair, and he ruled large parts of Wales. But over the years, however, relations between the king and his son-in-law had severely deteriorated. And to cut a long story short, John was planning to remind the son-in-law of his who the power on this island really was. He summoned many lords to attend him, his intention clearly to throw the might of his rich English state around. He wanted to send the right kind of signal out to the Welsh that he was serious this time, and therefore he ordered the mass hanging of 28 Welsh hostages, and then ordered the naval and military might of England to muster in the town of Chester. And yet two days later, on August the 16th, he called off all his plans dramatically. Why? Well, the story is that John was given news, a whisper from his shadowy world of spies and informants. There was to be an attempt on his life. The intelligence said that members of his own baronial class planned to kill him and place someone else in charge of England. Now, true or not, and this era is one of copious amounts of propaganda statements, so You've got to take the face value of the accounts of the time with a pinch of salt, but the rumour was that the rebels planned to murder the king and replace him with a man called Simon de Montford. Now, those of you with a smattering of English history may well have heard of that name. Simon de Montford is one of the great names in English history. But we're not talking about that Simon de Montfort. We're talking about his father, a completely different Simon de Montfort, Simon de Montfort Sr. And we have to take a minute to talk about his story because it's a hell of a one and updates us on some other things that are going on that we need to stay up to date on. So this Simon de Montfort Sr., technically the 5th Earl of Leicester, was born in France and he was one of those French nobles who had lands and titles on both sides of the English Channel. Now, in 1199, the same year King Richard the Lionheart, or King Richard Okinaw, died, Simon de Montfort was about 24 or 25, and he agreed that he was going to go on a new crusade. Yes, the crusades were going on. Now, as we've covered now for several chapters, the crusades were never a faraway thing for London. The politics of them and Outremer were all up in London's business. So when we last were at the Crusades, just to remind you, we left it with Richard of England having alienated all of his allies when he was over there, leaving him with not enough men to take Jerusalem, and despite vicious atrocity towards the Muslims, which just earned him the nickname Evil Richard in the region, Hid ended up negotiating a truce between the remaining Crusader states and the regime of Salah ad-Din. Richard then returned, got shipwrecked, held hostage, and folks forgot about Adrimer. Well, no, nobody did, just this podcast did. So, let's update you. Things were still going on. 
A year after Richard of England signed the peace treaty with Salah ad-Din on behalf of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, Salah ad-Din died. The great emir and de facto ruler over most of the region passed on the 4th of March in the year 1193. His empire was immediately split and contested between five separate factions led by three of his sons and two of his younger brothers. The end result was, as I always like to say in these things, utter carnage. The Christian kingdom of Jerusalem, which was basically mostly just the city of Jaffa these days, took one look at the giant Muslim armies traipsing around and beating living snot out of each other and went, let's be very quiet and not get involved, eh? And they extended that truce Richard had signed for a few more years. And then in 1197, a new crusade came along. Only this is not numbered as a proper crusade, as the forces only came from one part of Europe. So the Crusade of 1197 isn't called the Fourth Crusade, it's called the German Crusade. The German Crusade had been organised by the Holy Roman Emperor Henry VI. He was the son of Frederick Barbarossa, who had died during the Third Crusade, if you can remember, on his way to Jerusalem. Emperor Henry wanted to complete what his father could not do and march to the Holy Land and liberate Jerusalem. Alas, that particular Germanic apple did not fall far from that particular Germanic tree and Henry also died along the way and this again depleted the German forces as many went back to secure who was going to be the next emperor but eventually in 1197 the Germans finally reached the Middle East. And then, without seeking any opinion of the King of Jerusalem as to the ongoing geopolitical situation, the Germans attacked the territory of one of the factions in the post-Saladin Civil War, which happened to be forces led by Salah ad-Din's brother, Al-Adil, better known at the time as Sayef al-Din, the Sword of the Faith. Now, he was in charge of Damascus and the northern Syriac region, and, well, the Germans took the port of Sidon and then reclaimed Beirut, for the Crusader states. Saif al-Din responded by marching upon Jaffa and taking that of Jerusalem, just as Henry of Jerusalem decided to go and die. Eventually, the Queen of Jerusalem married the local-based Amory of Cyprus, who was as French as it gets, and his family had all been up in English and French politics, but Amory, as King of Jerusalem, negotiated a truce with Saif al-Din and... It lasted for about six years. This truce preserved the status quo in the region. Jaffa remained in Muslim hands, but they didn't rebuild its destroyed walls, so that prevented it from becoming a strategically defensible place. Beirut was left in the hands of the Crusaders, and the port of Sidon was kind of placed in the hand of foreign traders from Europe as a money-making enterprise. And then, just before this truce ran out, in uh, March the 1st, 1204, Salaf al-Din succeeded in uniting the former empire of his brother, Salah al-Din, gaining Egypt in the year 1200 and Aleppo in 1202. But while all this was happening, there should have been a crusade. A proper one. The fourth one. The one that could have capitalised upon the division and chaos within the Muslim lands to maybe regain lost territory. This was the crusade that Simon de Montfort Sr. decided to join. See, we told you we'd come back. However, this fourth crusade was being done kind of on a shoestring. The city of Venice agreed to build a massive fleet for all the crusader knights. and They got to Venice to take these ships and sail to Jerusalem, but um, 
maybe they did not have the money to pay for the massive fleet of ships that Venice had just built. So, so on the way, while still in the Adriatic, the uh, Venetians basically said, well, look, look, okay, we need to recoup some money on this enterprise, otherwise we go bankrupt. And it ended up against the orders of the Pope that the Venetians landed at the Christian port of Zara, and Venice had been going after Zara for some years, and Zara had been resisting them for some years, and basically the Crusaders took Zara for Venice. Simon de Montfort was there, but he had objected hugely and made a big thing of not taking part in the attack. And then, when the Venetians pointed out that, based on our calculations, uh, you still owe us a fortune, mate. And uh, Look, look, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe we could take out Constantinople and put a more Western-aligned ruler in charge there. Yeah, that would pay for this fleet. Simon de Montfort left the crusade, made his own way to Jaffa and the Holy Land, and missed the Fourth Crusade, basically taking out the oldest Christian capital in the world, Constantinople, and doing nothing to aid the Crusader states. In fact, the only positive thing that could come in from the aftermath of the Crusades in this era was a small bunch of Germanic knights took part in the fighting in Sidon and Beirut, and they became known as the Teutonic Knights, and they later helped the Holy Roman Empire push into Boland and the Baltic states. And even then, you could only say it was good news if you happened to be rather particularly ultra-Catholic and especially Germanic. And there is a whole point to this diversion. Simon de Montfort had returned from his expedition and personal crusade and was known as a powerful and charismatic, hardcore Catholic ruler. And he was to show just how bloody hardcore Catholic he was by partaking in another crusade right around the time our story set. In 1208, he was one of the principal drivers of the Albigenian Crusade in the south of France, where a bunch of local hardcore Catholic crusaders led by Simon de Montfort, encouraged by a papal legate who supposedly said the immortal words, kill them all, God will know his own, about the locals, and the new rock star of European Christianity, a pious monk called Dominic Guzman, and these guys and their forces had rampaged and plundered their way in the name of Christ all across the south of France to bring down a local heresy known as the Cathars. And I could spend hours talking about the Cathars and their crusade against them and the Catharian beliefs and It'd be fascinating. And then, oh, I could spend days talking about the utterly bonkers conspiracy theories that have emerged about the Cathars and that crusade. But that, alas, has nothing to do with London. So all we need to understand right now is that when John was going to launch his raid into Wales, he was informed of a plot to kill him, led by nobles in his realm, backed by his son-in-law, and he was going to be replaced by this great big heroic crusader who was rampaging around the south of France and also had grounds to have a beef with King John, as this Simon de Montfort, as we said, was the fifth Earl of Leicester, and some of his lands John had basically helped himself to. Now please note, this plot to kill John may not have been one where people were skulking around castles at night with daggers or putting poison in goblets, it could have been nothing more than men who had committed to join his forces, allowing the Welsh ruler to know when they would march with the king, 
or maybe just at a certain time they'd get delayed in the battle and the king would find himself facing the enemy undermanned or something like that. Maybe they were just going to capture him and hand him over to his son-in-law. We don't know. We just know that John believed this. And his response was instant. He left Nottingham and rather than travel to Chester, he called off the muster of troops, disbanded all the men who had flocked to his cause from his nobles and basically ran as fast as he could to London, defended only by his Brabacon mercenaries, who he trusted because he paid good money for their loyalty. And upon arrival back in the fortress of the Tower of London, John immediately demanded each baron send a relative to him as a hostage. But the thing is, John was arriving back to a London that was different. Because in and around these events, two things happened in London that changed the city forever. And the first, we think, just happened that summer. According to a document called the Liber de Antiquis Legibus, a text kept within the records of the Corporation of London that was written up in 1274, there is an entry for the years 1211 and 1212 that reads as follows. Quote, In this year was the great fire of Southwark, and it burned the church of St. Mary, and also the bridge, and the chapel there, and the greatest part of the city, unquote. In July 1212, London was struck by a huge city-wide inferno. There have been several fires on London, but none on this scale, not since the Pentecost fire of 1133, which we mentioned back in chapter 61. But this fire, the Great Fire of Southwark, was especially horrific. We suspect the fire started somewhere in the crowded streets of the community south of the river, Southwark, sometime between the 10th and 12th of July in the year 1212. The fire here did what large fires north of the river had done now a few times, and spread from building to building with alarming speed, driven by high winds. The largest church in Southwark at the time was St. Mary, better known to us as St. Mary Overy, and it was consumed in flames along with most of the buildings and structures in what we today would call Borough Market, Borough High Street, and the region occupied by London Bridge Station. And then the blaze reached the newly constructed stone gatehouse on the south side of London Bridge. Now you can imagine it, a blazing inferno consuming houses and driving people south to get away or more likely north to get away across the bridge into London. And supposedly, according to some, the high winds which had filled the sudden inferno carried hot cinders across the river where they landed on the thatched roofs of the wooden houses on the north side of the river. And there, they also went up. And while this fire had started in Southwark, the blaze had crossed the Thames and London itself was severely burned, and not just a small part of it, as the records say themselves, quote, the greatest part of the city, unquote. But this is where the story takes a dark turn. The people fleeing from the fire and Southwark converged on the bridge with people coming from the north side of the river, and they were now trapped as the fire spread to both sides of that passageway. Don't forget, King John had approved the construction of wooden shops and houses on the bridge, and these also caught fire. Now the story was passed down and written by the London antiquarian John Stowe in 1603 goes as follows. The people fleeing from the fire in Southwark were racing north across the bridge. Also on the bridge were people coming north from the north side either to help fight the fire or to perhaps gawk at the disaster. 
But those burning embers which had travelled across the river to burn properly the north bank, actually the most likely explanation of how they made it across the river was the fire had spread along London Bridge in the first place, setting a light to the buildings on the bridge, the wooden shops and houses upon the stone construction. And by any explanation we use, by all accounts, the fire basically started burning on both ends on the bridge and there were quite a few people on the bridge when this happened. Now Stowe's version tells us that as the buildings on the bridge and as the account near the time says, even the chapel to St. Thomas Becket were consumed, the people on the bridge were trying to avoid both the flames and the smoke and panic set in. People began to try to climb down. It's worth remembering that the stone arches were being held on pillars and they were set onto legs in the river. Now those not succumbing to the smoke and fumes or horrendously being caught out by the flames didn't have many options. These wide stone bases did offer a degree of safety as they were below the flames, but they were never meant to be climbed down to, so a lot of people had to drop, but some people fell and injured themselves. And Falling into the river was actually certain death. Stowe's accounts paints lurid descriptions of rescue boats being sent from the shores to try and rescue those on the stone bridge and on the bases of the pillars. But in between these pillars, the river was condensed in and flowed insanely quickly. And you could not stop. And trying to get people into the boats saw many of them fall in and drown. Or even worse, topple the boats and drown everybody involved. Those on the bridge who weren't killed by flames either jumped or drowned into the river or were crushed as they tried to board overloaded rescue boats. And meanwhile the inferno raged and London burnt. The whole thing is horrendous. It is uncertain how many people died in the Great Southwark Fire. Stowe suggests the final death toll was over 3,000 people. But that would have meant that roughly 7% of the entire city would have been killed and most modern historians think this is a hell of an exaggeration. But the number was probably in the hundreds and maybe even in the high hundreds. The aftermath of the fire saw, as we have seen after every other large fire in London, measures designed to prevent what happened from happening again. Back after the first great fire, William the Conqueror had introduced the curfew laws, and now in 1212, Mayor Fitz Aylwin introduced the Assize of Buildings. This regulation and bylaw stipulated the materials by which any new building should be constructed in order to minimise the future possibilities of that happening again. That Assize of Buildings, by the way, was to be the last bit of regulation Mayor Fitz Aylwin would be part of in September 1212. Just as King John was arriving in the Tower of London with his mercenaries, Henry Fitzalwyn, the London Stone, the mayor who had steered London for so long, its first pedestra, passed from this earth and was laid to rest in Holy Trinity Priory. His successor was a man called Roger Fitzalan. Now, Roger may have been a relative of his. I've seen some speculation by historians that said he could have been a nephew or even a grandson. I'm not convinced, but others say he may merely have been a close business associate. I mean, certainly we know that of the over 100 existing documents that bear the signature of Henry Fitzalwin as Mail of London, around 70 of these include Fitzalan's signature. Roger Fitzalan, a former alderman of the city and possibly Fitzalwin's chosen successor, 
became the second mayor of London. He was in charge now as London rebuilt from the fire, but the destruction within London was not quite finished yet. See, as we said earlier, King John had fled to the Tower of London with his paid mercenaries and occupied the fortress and demanded hostages from all the nobles in England as a surety for his safety. And at this point, two nobles fled the country. They were implicated in the conspiracy. The first was a man called Eustace de Vesey. He was like the other barons we've mentioned, a French noble with extensive lands in England, mostly up near the Scottish border. He'd served John conducting diplomatic missions for the king to the king of Scotland and being part of the Anglo-Norman knights active in Ireland. He supposedly fled initially running into Scotland. But the second conspirator who left, the second man who was named as to be working to kill the king, Robert Fitzwalter, the Lord of Baynard's Castle. Now, later, when de Vichy and Fitzwalter would arrive at the court of King Philip Augustus of France, the reasons why they attempted to take out John were widely publicised. Mostly, these were lurid stories about how King John tried to seduce Fitzwalter's daughter Matilda, and in time, these salacious stories were added upon and well, as I said earlier, propaganda statements were designed to put forward one side's opinion over the other, which means that much of what folks say at the time has to be treated with scepticism. Was Robert Fitzwalter driven to protect the virtue of his innocent daughter, or was he responding to John's heavy taxation, John's paranoia and duplicitous nature, and the erosion of powers of the likes of Fitzwalter and other nobles of England? Honestly, I believe it's the latter, but, you know, you can disagree. But whatever the reason, Robert Fitzwalter had fled England and our new mayor of London now had to cope with the first order of business, not being just recovering from the terrible fire that burnt down loads of the city, but also the fact that one of the handful of Castellans within the city had just been named as a traitor to the crown. Sitting in the Tower of London, John actually was a prisoner to his own dark emotions, and so he responded with typical petty savagery. He seized the estates of Fitzwalter, but was not satisfied, and on the 14th of January in the year 1213, King John ordered his mercenaries to march across London and to tear down Baynard's castle, so that it could no longer be a rival fortification against him in London. While the castle had originally been a symbol of the oppression of London by the Normans, its destruction was not seen as that now. While I cannot be sure, it is my honest belief that based on what's to come, Londoners perceived the destruction of Baynard's castle as a violation of the independence of the city, an erosion of their rights and privileges. Yet even then, there was little they could do. The king's Brabacons tore apart the castle, and Baynard's was reduced to rubble. John was not done yet, though. He destroyed another castle of Fitzwalter's, one located up in Bennington, near today's Stevenage, and insisted that Fitzwalter's sister hand over her daughter Alice as a hostage to prove her loyalty. But he was now stuck on the horns of a new dilemma. The men who conspired to topple him or kill him were in the court of his nemesis, King Philip Augustus of France. The Pope's excommunication had gotten to the point where Innocent III had said that his barons were absolved of any loyalty to him, and he still had not regained the territories he lost in France. And yet, here he was, the richest king in terms of monetary wealth who had ever been King of England, and yet he was seemingly on the back foot. 
He needed to act. And so, as 1212 moved into 1213, King John did act boldly. He travelled north, stamped out any hint of rebellion against him, led by the forces loyal to Fitzwalter's co-conspirator, and there was no follow-up. John had control still, but he realised control was not peace. In a wonderfully ambiguous statement, a contemporary analyst described the situation simply as, quote, the land kept silence, unquote. John realised he needed to curb his successes and change course, win some hearts and minds. He ordered his forest commissioners to be less zealous, uh, tried to reform some of his more oppressive measures. But he was looking for help and advice, and he got it unexpectedly in the form of the incredibly loyal and long-suffering elder statesman of the baronial class, William Marshall. The old knight who had served him and his house his entire life, and despite being out of favour, and treated badly by this rather capricious king, seemingly had an inexhaustible loyalty to his monarch, and he gained the support of 26 barons who were with him where he was, because at that time William Marshall was serving in Ireland, and they all agreed to throw their support behind the king and stand with him. He also advised John to make peace with the Pope, and that he, William Marshall, would be willing to lead the diplomatic charge in this. John decided to cut his losses with his fight with the papacy. After all, rumours were coming in that perhaps one of the reasons Fitzwalter had turned on him was simply because King Philip Augustus of France was seriously planning to invade England. And so delegations were sent to make peace with the Pope. As soon as Pope Innocent heard this, at the end of February 1213, he sent his papal legate, Pandulf, to England to make sure that John was serious. To remind listeners, John had started all of this by refusing to accept the Pope's choice of Archbishop of Canterbury, and said Archbishop and other exiled bishops were now all living in Paris, where Robert Fitzwalter had joined them, posing as a martyr who'd forsaken all rather than serve an excommunicated king. Yeah, whatever, Robert. On the 15th of May, 1213, however, John saw which way the wind was blowing, and so he bent the knee to Legate Pandulf in the town of Ewell near Dover. Here he reconciled with Innocent III and basically surrendered England to the Pope and agreed to his decision in the matter of the appointment of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The interdict was lifted, as was the excommunication, and peace and good relations were established between John and Innocent III. As part of this peace deal, Fitzwalter and his fellow conspirator were forgiven and restored, and Fitzwalter returned to England. Yet Baynard's castle was still in ruins. That slight could not be so easily undone. Still, when John had bent the knee to the papal legate, he had done so in front of a large army, and the army was located near Dover simply because, at the time, the French invasion of England was about to happen. It was by now known that King Philip of France was hoping to gain England as an appendage for his son Louis, who was married to John's niece, and at the Council of Sissons in April 1213, King Philip of France went so far as to draft a scheme for relations between the two countries when Louis should be crowned as King of England. And yet, in the French king's desire to do this, even as he assembled a mighty invasion fleet, supposedly numbering 1,700 ships, King Philip had stood on the many sensitive toes of the rather prickly landowners of the Channel Coast, and was also not on the best terms with the Pope, and John began to sense a change in his political fortunes. 
The Counts of Boulogne and Flanders were on the receiving end of Philip and his son attacking them. Territories had been taken, obedience had been demanded, and the old alliances that had helped Richard the Lionheart against Philip began to be reinstated. John also realised, perhaps first of all the kings since the Anglo-Saxon lords of the land, that sea power was the key to defending England. So he sent out his ships to conduct pirate-like commando raids in Fichon and Dieppe and against shipping in the Seine. And on May 28, 1213, a fleet of 500 ships sailed out of Dover under the command of William Earl of Salisbury and the Counts of Boulogne and Holland, along with 700 knights and a large body of Babacon mercenaries. Two days later, these 500 ships reached the Flemish coast and entered the estuary of the River Zwin. And as they came to Dam, the then port of Bruges, they were met with an amazing sight. Hundreds upon hundreds of French vessels were riding or beached upon the shore. Prince Philip had brought his invasion fleet round while he overran Flanders. Up to 1,700 ships, heavily laden with stores and the personal belonging of the French barons. The English force scouts revealed they were only sailors on guard as the troops were away at the siege of Ghent or had just gone off for forage or plunder. The Earl of Salisbury ordered an immediate attack. Over 300 French ships were cut adrift and hundreds more were rifled and set on fire. It was glorious. The next day the English landed to attack the French in Bruges, but at that point King Philip himself arrived with the main body of his army and the English and their allies were swiftly defeated and only just managed to retreat back to their ships to avoid total destruction. But still, the raid part had been glorious and the Earl of Salisbury sailed back to England laden with spoils. More than that, the threat of invasion of England was completely ended. King Philip, unable to get his remaining transports out of the river's wind, was obliged to burn them lest they fall prey to another sortie like that. And even more than that, King John was able to use his considerable fortune to build a grand alliance the first ever English-organised anti-French alliance, really, from across Europe. The Holy Roman Empire was now willing to throw their weight behind the attack upon Philip, along with uh, the regions of Flanders and Boulogne, and John was now able to plan his own invasion. This was it. He was now going to reclaim the Angevin Empire of his father and his brother. John would restore that which was lost. As 12.14 dawned, the story of John and his fate hung in the air, and the future of London danced with amazing possibilities. The new mayor of the city and everyone waited with bated breath, as their fates would be decided on the shores of Europe. And I will leave it there. Thanks for listening. Honestly, hope you enjoyed this episode. I really had fun writing it. The story of London only exists due to listener support, and I would like to gratefully thank my supporters who have kept us going for another month. And I would like to give a especially loud and heartfelt thank you to the user known only to me as Mountain Spider Girl, whose support has been one of the reasons we're still going. Thank you so much, you absolute star. If you find this podcast entertaining, and I'm really amazed and grateful that you do, and if you can help, you can support it via a membership page over on the Buy Me A Coffee site. 
Or if you don't want to become a regular member, you can make a one-off contribution there. And if you don't have the funds to do that, or if you don't fancy doing that, and I fully understand that too, then I'd be humbled if you could simply leave a nice review or give this show five stars as that impresses the automatic algorithms that dictate how much attention a podcast gets. That's it from me. I'll see you all next week. Thank you. Thank you.